Hello and welcome back to Paleo Party. We're in between seasons here, but while we're busy behind the scenes, we've put together some little bite-sized episodes to keep the party going. In these Paleo Party shorts, we'll be chatting to an amazing group of fossilologists and asking them to tell us a little bit about their favourite fossils. We have an amazing selection of ancient beasts that we're going to be talking about, and most of them are really obscure. So make sure you head over to our website, www.paleoparty.weebly.com, where you can find out lots of information and even photos of the critters that we're going to be chatting about. Anywho, let's get this party started and meet today's guest. Hi, I'm Dr. Emily Mitchell. I'm a NERC Research Fellow at the University of Cambridge Department of Zoology. What is your favourite fossil? So my favourite fossil is an Ediacaran fossil from around 565 million years ago called Fractifusus. And Fractifusus is a rangimorph, so this is a clade of organisms that's unique to the Ediacaran. And they are known because they have fractal or self-similar like branching. So that's they've got little branches of branches of branches of branches. And while they look superficially like plants, because they lived really, really deep in the ocean, far below the photic zone, we can't, uh, we know that they weren't photosynthetic. Uh, the reason I, I love fractifusers so much is we have thousands of them. So we, we have bedding, bedding planes that are covered with thousands upon thousands of these fractifusers. And they were preserved under volcanic ash, so rather like Pompeii. They were killed where they were living, and because they couldn't move, you know where they were when they were alive. And the reason I love it so much is because we have all this wonderful in situ, in life data. You could do huge amounts of wonderful mathematical and statistical analyses on them. And so we find out lots of interesting things about the Ediacaran that we wouldn't otherwise know. So let's just um, backtrack a little bit. Can you explain the term Ediacaran? But also, can you explain a little bit what, what the world was like back then? Ediacaran organisms come from the Ediacaran time period, which is around 565 million years ago to 541, start of the Cambrian. Uh, life was very, very different back then. So before the Ediacaran, you really just have microbial life. Uh, you don't have large complex organisms such as animals. Uh, and so the sea floors were covered in microbial mats. Uh, which isn't, doesn't really happen much today because different animals and burrowers kind of root around in the, in the, in the substrate and mess it all up. So <laughs> microbial mats don't have time to grow. And so life in the Ediacaran was very, very different. So you had these microbial mats and then you had all these um, unfamiliar creatures such as frangiomorphs and, uh, and Dickinsonia that lived of, uh, on and around the microbial mats. Can you tell us about the discovery of, of Ediacaran organisms? And, uh, and where they're found in the world? So Ediacaran fossils are found all around the world. The, the most famous, that's the most abundant sites, are Newfoundland, Canada at Mistaken Point and in the Discovery Geopark. We've got them, uh, slightly younger ones, in South Australia uh, and, there, and in Russia as well. Um, and then just before the Cambrian, you have, uh, you have sites from Namibia. Um, but we're actually finding new sites all the time. There's some really amazing uh, fossils coming out of China, the Lantian and the uh, Shibatan biota, including not only wonderful soft-bodied organisms, but also trace fossils. And also from Brazil, we're getting some really, and South America, we're getting really wonderful Ediacaran fossils. So new sites have been discovered all the time. But the first ever 
Ediac, well, the first ever fossil that was found in rocks known to be Precambrian was actually here in the UK in Charnwood Forest. And this was back in the 1950s. It was actually uh, the first fossil uh, was found was is called Charnia. And it was actually found twice. <laughs> the first, uh, both, both times by school children. The first time it was found uh, was by a girl called, uh, well, she's now a woman, obviously, but a schoolgirl at the time called Tina uh, Negus, and no one believed her. They're like, don't be stupid, little girl. Uh, of course, we don't get fossils in these rocks. A year later, um, Roger Mason uh, and came along and found, found the fossil with his friends. Um, his father knew Trevor Ford, who's a geologist uh, at Leicester University, and... Yeah, the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> um, uh, Trevor Ford published Johnny and Mason, I named after Roger. Um, and then I think it was only the last 20 years or so that um, people have been uh, aware that uh, Tina found the, found the fossil first. And Roger, for, you know, is fully aware and fully admits that she found it first. It's, <laughs> it's just one of those, those things that she wasn't believed at the time, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, you can see wonderful. Uh, you can see the Charnia holotype in the New York Museum uh, in, in in Leicester, which is really wonderful. Highly recommended. Could you describe your sort of favourite fossil if you were describing it to me, who has absolutely no idea <laughs> about technical words? Um, like, if you had to describe it using just like really simple words, how would you describe this critter? So Fractifusus is very hard to describe, but it's it's been described as spindle shape. I personally don't really know what a spindle looks like. Yeah, what is a spindle? Um, <laughs> no idea, but it's slightly ovate in shape. It was relatively flat, so it was, um, and it's got all these different modules or segments that run along it. And within each segment uh, or module, you have uh, lots of little branches. Um, so rather a, a little bit like a coral or a sea pen, you have lots of branches at branches at branches, even though we don't know whether or not they were related to Nidarians or not. And do these creatures have the, are these um, the guys that have the little holdfasts that's like stuck no. to the sea pen, or are these the ones that don't have it? These don't have ah. the holdfasts, no. They're lying flat on the sea floor, okay. whereas most of the Ediacan organisms were flapping up and around in the... Right, okay. So these are, these are the ones that look like they're sort of like... I suppose they look like little bug creatures that sort of slither along. Is that are uh, they moving? Yeah, no, those are the Dickinsonia. So those oh my God. Are the <laughs> get these wonderful footprints. Fractifusus were just like flat. Uh, someone described them once as knitted Cornish pasties, which <laughs> which sounds both weird and delicious. <laughs> well, indeed, yes. Um, but uh, yeah, they're very they're very strange strange things to look at. Okay, cool. Um, can you tell me a little bit about where they're found and how they were discovered? So uh, Fractifusus are found almost exclusively in Newfoundland, Canada. There's one possible specimen that's been found in the Mackenzie Mountains um, out in Western Canada, uh, but, uh, but that's about it. They obviously, the local people that's been living in Newfoundland would have known about them for centuries because they are very clear, you know, marks and shapes on the rocks. They were first described by seven, uh, scientists in the 1950s 
um, a master's student from Amoro University was mapping the coastline around Mistaken Point. Um, it's called Mistaken Point because it gets very, very foggy. <laughs> um, and uh, people think they've hit the mainland North America when they haven't. And so this, this mapping student, um, Miserai, uh, saw all these, these fossils um, on, on the main main DNA surfaces. So Mistaken Point is actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site because of its importance to understanding the evolution of life on Earth. And the, the, main, the main fossil surfaces, the D&D, surfaces are, um, are covered in fractifuses. So fractifuses, my favourite fossil, is the most common uh, on both of them. And, and so that's when they were first described in their late 50s by Mizrahi and his um, master supervisor, Anderson. And uh, you've kind of touched on it there about the reason why they're scientifically important, because, mm. you know, they're some of the oldest sort of critters that we know about. Yeah. But also at the same time, uh, they're so plentiful. And so you can work out a lot about, about them, but also about the environment and everything else. Is there anything else that makes these or your this fractifusus particularly uh, scientifically important, and why you care so much about it? Uh, so I, I I care so much about fractifusus. Um, the well, it was the, the first uh, paleontology paper that I ever published was on fractifusus. So yes. <laughs> it's I'm very fond of it, and the reason I I, I focus so much on fractifusus was because of its high abundance, both at mistaken point and up in the Discovery Geopark on Bonavista Peninsula in, in Newfoundland, where you actually have many more fractifuses. There's one surface, which is known as Johnson surface, where you've got, well, I've mapped out almost 4,000 fractifuses, but you've probably got 20 of them, 20,000 of them just everywhere. Um, uh, why, why, why are fractifuses important over other, other Ediacaran organisms at the time? I would, I would go just about numbers that when you have that sort of numbers, you can do so much more um, and get so much better idea of kind of population variability than you would you would if you've only got a few specimens. I mean, you killed two birds with one stone because my next question was, why is it your favourite fossil? Well, how, <laughs> tell me a little bit about how, your, how you got involved with the, your first paper. How, how did that come about? Um, that, that's, I guess, a longer story um so <laughs> i got all day <laughs> um so i my background is actually in mathematics and theoretical physics i did a master's in ecology and got very interested in ecosystem structure um and so nick butterfield at cambridge earth science department advertised a phd looking at ecosystem structure for burgess shale and cambrian um creatures and the idea was to do some quite theoretical food web model models so i, I came to cambridge knowing nothing about earth science um like when I got the PhD offer, my husband was like, Emily, are you aware there are three different types of rocks? I was like, oh, really? Are there? What are they? <laughs> so <laughs> I really didn't know much. <laughs> Better now, though. A lot more. Really, really loved geology and paleontology. Um, but kind of as I was starting my PhD, I... Um, in the first year, I was looking at kind of the problems that you have when you're trying to do very quantitative ecological analyses with fossil data and realised the huge problems that preservation um, can cause, obviously less so with something like the Burgess shell, but still quite problematic. Um, but then I found this paper on Ediacaran um, fossils um, done by Matt Clapham. A mistaken point where he'd done some really nice ecological analyses, including some simple spatial stuff, nearest neighbor analyses. Um, which, yeah, I mean, it's from 2003 at the time, it was like cutting edge ecological analyses. Um, now we have like so much more maths and computational power to do 
so many more things. But I was like, oh my God, this is what I want to be doing. All this data, people haven't really looked at it in a very quantitative ecological perspective. And uh, and so I went out doing my PhD uh, uh, to collect uh, spatial data, so to do some spatial analyses of the fossils. And that's when I first came across fractifusis, among the other things. It's also quite nice as a PhD student, because uh, fractifusis is very easy to ID in the field. Um, quite a lot of the ediacaran fronds can get quite hard <laughs> and some uh, aren't easily resolvable. It's practically quite nice. So during my PhD, I, I um, looked at D&D surface um, at mistaken point and noticed some really interesting uh, patterns with fractifusis and the fact that they were forming very, very small, very round clusters of babies around the parents, which was indicating potentially that they were reproducing asexually via stolen or runners rather than sexual reproduction. Um, and so after my PhD, actually no, so, so, so it wasn't actually after, it was kind of towards the end of my PhD, decided I needed more data and there's a surface that my colleagues were aware of um, in the in Discovery Geopark on Bonavista Peninsula, uh, which had this wonderful Johnson surface with all the all the fractifusis on. Um, and so um, and they were going there. I was pregnant at the time, and me personally, my pregnancy, I, I there's no way I was doing field work. People do, people are amazing, um, not me. <laughs> um, I cannot do any field work at all. Um, so they they went out and they very kindly mapped out a, a big section of um, the Johnson surface for me, uh, and that that formed the basis for our, our, uh, our paper, our fractifusis paper, because we kind of um, confirmed the the ideas I had about stolen metals reproduction from the DNA surface using the, the Johnson surface, also known as H14 surface. Um, so that's that's how it came came about. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, I'm a bit hesitant now because my next question was about fieldwork. But um... <laughs> so I, I was going to ask that you seem to do a lot of fieldwork where you go out there and and you you map well something which is a term that I hear quite often, which is map the surfaces and stuff. Could you just walk us through what your fieldwork normally entails and and how you do it? So I I really like fieldwork. I love being in the field. I love. I think it's very important scientifically, especially for quantitative people to have an idea of what the data actually looks like, where it comes from, what the limitations are on that. Um, so over the last six years, me and my colleagues and group have been uh, yeah, mapping out these ediacaran fossil surfaces. While it is possible to map out using photographs and photogrammetry, um, it's not really possible to do that very systematically in Newfoundland because the weather's not very good and you need a very precise light angle. So they're doing it in uh, the Ediacaran um, uh, in, in South Australia using photogrammetry where they, you know, the weather in Australia is a little bit more reliable than in Newfoundland. Um, the worst season I had on the weather front in Newfoundland, I had two half hour sections of good light on the fossil surfaces over three weeks. Um, so it's not it's not <laughs> it's not very reliable. Uh, and so what I've been doing is laser scanning the fossil surfaces. And so this is um, a machine that's normally used in manufacturing uh, in order to kind of get very high precision equipment. And it's mounted on a big tripod and it's a mechanical arm. You slowly pass the laser scanner over the surface. It doesn't it's non-contact, so it doesn't harm the fossils in any way. These are very protected fossils. You can't wear shoes on mistaken point in case you kind of catch some stones that damage fossils. And so you sit on the rock surfaces for days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months, laser scanning them. It takes about an hour to do a meter square. And uh, in this way, we've mapped out uh, 
uh, I think we've got, in, including the ones that we did with photogrammetry, I think we've got about 28 surfaces now. So this is all the, um, all the communities from this time period that have over 100 specimens in are now mapped out. So, so some of the fossil surfaces, um, such as St. Shots, the relief isn't particularly good, so it wouldn't be caught by the laser scanner, even though we're scanning at a 40 micron resolution. But you, you do have colour differential of the fossils. So this this might be a stupid question, but if you're not allowed to wear shoes well, and it's wet all the time, what do you do? Do you get wet feet? Well, well so we, we can't we can't laser scan in the rain. Um, so, so what we tend to do is when the weather's good, and so small amount of fog is fine or cloud is fine, um, but rain is bad. We tend to work very long days. So we're out at dawn and back at dusk. So kind of 14 odd hour days. It takes about 45 minutes to set up the laser scanner, 45 minutes to take it down. And it can take kind of well, between 45 minutes to an hour and a quarter to get the fossil surfaces. Um, and so, yeah, when we're on the fossil surfaces, either it's uh, bare feet because you don't want your boots, the metal bit on walking boots often scrape fossils. Um, or a uh, mistaken point, you wear little booties. So neoprene booties, <laughs> in order to ensure that there's absolutely nothing that can scratch up the I mean, I do a lot of field work, uh, and I would love to wear neoprene booties, but a lot of the places where I go, you need to wear like steel toe cap boots, otherwise you might lose a toe. So <laughs> it's quite a nice change. Um, no, no, very different. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you very much uh, for no, taking no. the time to chat to us. Yeah. And no, it's, uh, it's been fun. Big thank you to our guest this week and stay tuned as there are more Paleo Party shorts on the way. Remember, you can find details about the fossil on our website at www.paleoparty.weebly.com. Paleo Party is an interactive podcast created by Thomas Clements, Christopher Dean and Emma Don. This series of Paleo Party shorts is sponsored by a Paleontological Society Outreach and Education Grant. Our intro music is Voxel Revolution by Kevin MacLeod. <laughs>